Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. Today, a look back at 2022 with historian and author, our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. So the idea is to weaken, if not destroy, Russia or turn it into some sort of puppet regime that then can go full force in confronting Beijing. So these are the demented dreams of your neighbors in Washington, D.C., in Foggy Bottom and across the river at the Pentagon. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. President Joe Biden signed a $1.7 trillion spending bill on Thursday that forks over $858 billion to the military, including another $45 billion to Ukraine. This spending on war is more than the $772 billion spent at home on so-called domestic needs. The new $45 billion allocated to Ukraine brings the total U.S. spent on the proxy war with Russia to more than $90 billion. Meanwhile, only $40 billion was earmarked for communities suffering for emergencies such as hurricanes, drought, or other natural disasters. The death toll in Buffalo and its suburbs rose to 39 on Thursday as city officials faced criticism for their handling of a storm that dumped more than four feet of snow on the city and for their inability to rescue so many who froze to death. Former Buffalo police officer Carrie O'Horn told Democracy Now! that Buffalo police left a corpse which was visible to passersby for two days on the ground without removing it. They're just down the street. So how they were not able to get that body, I'm not sure. Um, but it took two days and and um, the persistence of regular people to in order for them to go get that body. And that was only one of the bodies. Despite the fact that Buffalo regularly faces snowy weather, the city's supply of snow plows and other infrastructure is considered inadequate. But at the same time, New York officials approved $850 million in public subsidies to help the Buffalo Bills construct a new football stadium with $600 million from the state of New York and $250 million from Erie County. Senator Bernie Sanders said on Wednesday that Southwest Airlines executives should pay a price for their thousands of flight cancellations, which have left passengers and employees stranded around the country. Sanders wrote on Twitter, quote, Southwest's flight delays and cancellations are beyond acceptable. This is a company that got a $7 billion taxpayer bailout and will be handing out $428 million in dividends to their wealthy shareholders. 
The U.S. Department of Transportation must hold Southwest CEO accountable for his greed and incompetence, end quote, Sanders said. The Lever.org reports that four months before Southwest mass cancellations, 38 state attorneys general wrote to congressional leaders declaring that the Department of Transportation, quote, failed to respond and to provide appropriate recourse, end quote, to thousands of consumer complaints about airlines customer service. The U.S. Military Academy at West Point is removing Confederate monuments from its New York State campus. The removal includes a portrait of General Robert E. Lee, who was a graduate and superintendent of West Point. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, more than 230 Confederate symbols have been removed or renamed in the U.S. since May 2020, when racial justice protests swept the country after the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police. And finally, Brazilian soccer great Pelé, winner of three World Cups, died Thursday in Sao Paulo after suffering from colon cancer. He was 82. And Wadia Jamal, wife of imprisoned journalist Mumia Abu-Jamal, joined the ancestors on December 27th. The news was posted online by activists at bringmumiahome.com. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, as we consider the end of 2022, the U.S. NATO proxy war against Russia in Ukraine, or what is commonly known as the Russian invasion of Ukraine, will be the top story of the year. And with us to discuss this and all the other stories is On the Ground geopolitical analyst Gerald Horn. He is professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston and the author of more than three dozen books, including most recently, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of American Fascism. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me for this end of year conversation. And it's really hard to kind of contain all of the many ramifications of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's the actual war itself. There's the other things we've discussed, the information war, the war of propaganda, the economic ramifications around the world, the increasing multipolarity of the world, all these things. But I just wanted you to tell me where you would like to start in terms of reviewing 2022 in Ukraine. Well, you are correct to point to the U.S. proxy war in Ukraine as perhaps the major story of the year. Certainly, it will have widespread repercussions in 2023 and going forward. Uh, Number one, it does seem as if Ukraine is perceived in the Pentagon and the State Department as an unsinkable aircraft carrier off the western border of Russia. And therefore, Ukraine and their imagination can play the same role that Afghanistan played in helping to bring down the Soviet Union. That is to say, it will be bleeding Russia internally going forward. Uh, That is their harebrained scheme. However, I think it goes beyond that because I think it's also possible, if not probable, that Ukraine could also be used as a cudgel against uh, Western European so-called allies that refuse to toe the line. I'm thinking of Germany, which uh, put a thumb in the eye of Uncle Sam just a few weeks ago as Chancellor Schultz and a plane load of German businessmen flew off to China for a festival of deal cutting. Washington sees China as public enemy number one, and was certainly displeased by that journey. 
And so Ukraine, because it's being armed so relentlessly, can also potentially be used to keep Germany and the other Western European nations in line. And then there's the question of commodities. We know that Washington and its North Atlantic allies have sought to put a cap on the price of Russian energy. I think that the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries led by Saudi Arabia see that as a naked attempt by the United States and its allies to weaken OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, to seize pricing power for the lifeblood of a modern economy, speaking of petroleum in the first instance and natural gas in the second instance. And therefore, that presents a mortal danger, not only to Saudi Arabia, which, by the way, invited President Xi Jinping to their capital in order to try to work out a circumvention of this scheme from Washington. But it also opens the door for Washington and its allies to try to seize pricing power for virtually any commodity, uh, Mm. from petroleum on down to, say, the cocoa that Ivory Coast in West Africa produces and then sends to Europe, Belgium and Switzerland, to be processed into chocolate that's sold for a pretty penny in Washington and in other metropolitan areas. And didn't an African country recently uh, propose that it wanted to process its own cocoa and then Switzerland said, no, then uh, we won't buy it from you or something like that. And then China said, well, we'll buy it. Exactly. And that's why I bring this up, because it not only raises the question, as you've just articulated, that other nations that produce commodities would like to construct an OPEC-style organization, which it will then be resisted in the North Atlantic bloc. And then China enters the fray. And raising China also allows us to give a wider scope to this escapade in Ukraine, because I think it's fair to say that Washington feels that it cannot confront China and Russia together, given their present strength. So the idea is to weaken, if not destroy Russia, or turn it into some sort of puppet regime that then can go full force in confronting Beijing. So these are the demented dreams of your neighbors in Washington, D.C., in Foggy Bottom and across the river at the Pentagon. When you talk about demented dreams, you know, there are those of us who are covering this who are wondering, you know, just how demented, you know, those dreams are. But uh, I wanted to touch on the whole issue of the information war. And there's a piece that I know I sent to you by Joe Loria in Consortium News titled Fighting the Psyopcracy. So we've talked about the Ukraine war being a psyop, the psychological operation or Americans. And you can't help but call it that when you think about the lies or the omission of information that is really impacting Americans who don't even really know that this war didn't start in February 
2022, February 24th, 2022, when Russia went in to Ukraine. Let me just read a few paragraphs from this story. He starts by saying, Kathy Vogan, the executive producer of Consortium News webcast CN Live, recently coined a new term to describe rule by PSYOPs or psychological operations, psyopcracy. According to Wikipedia, psychological operations are operations to convey selected information and indicators to audiences to influence their emotions, motives, and objective reasoning, and ultimately the behavior of governments, organizations, groups, and individuals. The purpose of United States psychological operations is to induce or reinforce behavior perceived to be favorable to U.S. objectives. William Casey, CIA director under Ronald Reagan, said, quote, we'll know our disinformation program is complete when everything the American public believes is false, end quote. Thus, the American people are continuously subject to a number of psychological operations otherwise known as, quote, unquote, the news. <laughs> so further down, he says, since then, many examples have followed it of completely false stories being planted into people's minds to start and keep a war going. The fake WMD narrative in Iraq, perhaps the most infamous. Today, the war people are being fooled about is in Ukraine. Sometimes a PSYOP doesn't involve inserting false information so much as leaving out what's true. The American people, and by extension, people all around the world, have been led to believe that an unprovoked Russian madman started the war last February. That's because they are purposely not told that the war actually began in 2014 after a U.S.-backed coup in Kiev led Russian speakers in Donbass to declare independence, after which the coup government militarily attacked them. So as part of his post, Joe Loria links to this excerpt of an interview with former CIA officer Frank Snepp by Witness to War, and I think this is in 1983, where Snepp discusses planting fake stories during the Vietnam War. When we, the CIA, wanted to um, circulate disinformation on a particular issue, disinformation is not necessarily, uh, not necessarily a lie, it may be a half-truth and uh, we would pick out a journalist. I would go do the briefing and uh, hope that he would put the information in print. What was your percentage of success? We were pretty successful in planning uh, information of a rather rarefied nature. For instance, uh, if we wanted to get uh, across to the American public that the North Vietnamese were building up their force structure in South Vietnam, I would go to a journalist and advise him that in the past uh, six months, X number of North Vietnamese forces had come down the Ho Chi Minh Trail system through southern Laos. Now, there is no way a journalist can check that information. Uh, that's data derived from uh, uh, radio intercepts, uh, spy in the uh, sky photography. So either he goes with the information or he doesn't, and ordinarily or usually, the journalists would go with it because it was it looked like some kind of exclusive and um, I would say our percentage of planning that kind of data was uh, 70 to 80 percent. And again that was former CIA officer Frank Snepp speaking to witness the war in 1983. So so that I thought was a really important piece. So Gerald I, mean, I know that you write a lot you do a lot of interviews and 
How extensive or impactful do you think the psychological operation or the management of news and information has been on the American people or in general with this war in Ukraine? Well, obviously, it's, it's been critical. And I think of it not only in terms of acts of commission, but acts of omission. For example, the European press has been buzzing of late about interviews given by former German Chancellor Angela Merkel, where she concedes that the so-called Minsk agreements that were designed in part by Berlin to settle the crisis in Ukraine were no more than stalling maneuvers in order to give the Kiev regime time to rearm and fortify. And Mm. this calls into question, obviously, the sincerity of the peaceful intentions of the so-called partners of Moscow. But what I find remarkable is the omission. To my knowledge, that story, which is big news in Europe, has not appeared in the major U.S. press organs uh, to this point. But as you correctly suggest, there are the acts of commission that we should be equally concerned about. And in that regard, I'm thinking of a story that appeared in the New York Times on the front page just a few days ago, which talked about so-called African fealty to Moscow. The focus was on the Central African Republic and how supposedly it's become a neo-colony of Moscow. There's no context for the story in terms of the depredations over the decades of French imperialism and French neocolonialism, which brought that Central African Republic to its knees. Instead, there are these lurid stories about Russian alleged exploitation. And I'm afraid that there are even those who should know better who will be persuaded by such stories, stories that quite frankly are no more than psychological warfare. Right. So, Before we move on from Ukraine, I wanted to just mention a few other headlines and get your thoughts. A few uh, headlines from Multipolarista, the editor, Ben Norton, who we try to highlight on our show, as well as other independent media doing really good work. He just posted Thursday an article with the headline, CIA and NATO are waging sabotage attacks inside Russia. And this is an article where he is citing the work of journalist Jack Murphy. And there are other posts inside the story that uh, talk about several U.S. news outlets refusing to run the story. So he is circulating it through independent media. And the article just talks about sabotage attacks include railways, bridges, fuel depots, military facilities, power lines, and electrical plants. Another story is really dealing with the fallout economically, how Russia is dropping the U.S. dollar for the Chinese yuan and fast. So that's really getting into some of the economic fallout of this of this war. Well, when you first mentioned the term sabotage, what I quickly thought of in terms of one of the major stories of this year, 2022, was the sabotage of the pipeline bringing energy from Russia into Germany in particular. And Nord Stream too. Exactly. Now, mm-hmm. it's unclear to some who 
had a role in this criminal act, although most fingers are pointing at Washington, D.C. I should also say that uh, with regard to what's going on in Russia right now, I was struck by the fact that Ukraine was able to send what has been described as drones to attack the Angles Air Base inside Russia, 450 miles or so from the Ukraine-Russian border. That is to say, deep inside Russia. This is a major base as part of the nuclear bombing force of Russia. It's quite ominous and dangerous that this particular facility was attacked. It does not bode well for 2023. And Also, I would say that one of the major stories for 2022 is this further movement towards de-dollarization. That is to say, ditching the dollar as the international currency for trade, even when the United States is not involved. And you saw an aspect of de-dollarization with the aforementioned trip of President Xi Jinping of China to Saudi Arabia, where clearly there was discussion of Saudi sending its lifeblood, speaking of petroleum, to China, but not being compensated with U.S. dollars, but being compensated by the Chinese currency. Obviously, Russia, in terms of its energy sales to India, to China, is trying to move away from the dollar. Uh, It's learned a bitter lesson since many of its dollar reserves up to about 300 billion were frozen and and are still frozen to my knowledge uh, by the US authorities and their allies. And I should say as well, that is this question of de-dollarization also has a commodities aspect to it. You have a country like Ghana, formerly known as the Gold Coast, which is seeking to engage in international trade, not necessarily by accumulating dollars to buy precious uh, imports, but to use gold, to use a commodity. And this is a race now between commodity trade and dollar trade. And we'll see how this evolves in 2023. Yes, we certainly will. And I thank you for bringing up Nord Stream 2 because it's not only a tremendous story in terms of the picture about the Ukraine war and energy, but it was like the major disastrous environmental incident. The level of methane released was incredible. And the fact that this isn't a main story that's being kind of hushed by the Western press, it's not being covered, it's not being discussed, uh, further convinces many people that it's something that Western governments were involved in. The environmental impact is disastrous. It's a catastrophe. But, you know, we need to take a brief break and we'll be right back.
next, Gerald, I wanted us to talk about Africa and the global South. I know that, you know, we never have as much time as I think that we're going to have. I want to talk about Africa and the global South and the impact of not only the direct impact of the Ukraine war, but also just this era and how we already talked a little bit about de-dollarization and, and those issues, but just how the world seems to be split into camps, you know, whether uh, it's the U.S. and the North Atlantic European countries, whether it's China and Russia, and then all these kind of countries that used to be called the non-aligned movement. Uh, but now they're neutral and they, they don't have to be slaves to U.S. hegemony to survive. So in Africa this year, we, we covered here on, on the ground uh, demonstrations by the Ethiopian diaspora here at the U.S. Capitol protesting U.S. policy in, in Ethiopia and U.S. support, either overt or covert support of Tigray rebels considered by many Ethiopians as terrorists who were attacking Ethiopia, the Ethiopian government. We talked about that. We recently discussed the apparent settlement in that conflict. But we also have the expulsion of France from Mali, I believe, and their embrace of whether it's Russia or just other countries that can support them, whether it's Russia or China. And so I wanted to know, um, and maybe because of time, we should kind of combine that with developments in South America in terms of the two coups we've seen in Peru and Argentina, and just what is the global South really facing right now in their efforts to get out from underneath the boot of U.S. hegemony? Well, I think what you just expressed was summed up best by the longtime, long-term president of Uganda, Yoweri Museveni, went at a press conference with visiting Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. He noted that Uganda was able to pick its own enemies and its own antagonists, and it did not need Washington to pick its antagonists for Kampala. This was in the context of the United States and its North Atlantic allies putting pressure on African nations to vote in favor of sanctions against Russia, a kind of pressure that generally was rebuffed by sovereign Africa. However, in that context, I should mention another disturbing story of 2022, which is the legislation carried by Congressional Black caucus stalwart Gregory Meeks of Southeast Queens, New York, which calls upon Washington to sanction African nations that refuse to go along with sanctions against Russia. This is very disturbing and very ominous. And I think it's also self-defeating because we know that with the boycott of Russian energy, that puts a premium, for example, on Algerian natural gas, on Nigerian petroleum, on Angolan petroleum. And Washington does itself no favors by trying to twist the arms of those with whom it has to work out energy deals, which of course brings us across the Atlantic to South America, where you had the important election of President Petro in Colombia, uh, followed by the comeback of President Lula da Silva 
in the continent's giant. Speaking of Brazil, he'll be sworn in rather shortly. And on the flip side, I'm afraid that I have to report as well on the coup that led to the deposing of President Castillo in Peru, uh, which has unfortunate echoes of the not-so-distant past. I saw this headline in Multipolarista, Latin America's plan to challenge U.S. dollar with new currency and regional financial architecture. And uh, that story just talks about the perhaps the reintegration of economies that was started during the last so-called pink tide when there was a UNASUR and other types of, of entities to create more regional uh, trade and to, like I said before, get out <laughs> from under the boot of U.S. hegemony and the, the reign of the dollar. So that's something that I guess... I will continue to try to cover or look out for in 2023. I guess go back across the ocean. <laughs> I wanted to definitely mention in this year-end review the rise of the far right in apartheid Israel. Uh, we know that the the murder, the dehumanization of the Palestinian people, the fact that Gaza is considered an open-air prison that is uninhabitable, and I wanted to play a just a brief clip from Ali Abulima, director and of Electrona Intifada. He spoke to Rania Kalik on Breakthrough News about the situation. The new government by Benjamin Netanyahu will include Itamar Ben Gavir, an anti-Palestinian racist, and these are Abulima's words an anti-Palestinian racist who is considered extreme even by Israeli standards. Ben Gavir is notorious, among other things, for idolizing Baruch Goldstein, the American Jewish settler who massacred 29 Palestinian men and boys at the Ibrahimi Mosque in Hebron in 1994. Another senior minister is expected to be Bezalel Smoltrich, a religious fanatic whose views are so reprehensible and embarrassing that even Britain's reliably anti-Palestinian Israel lobby had to distance itself from and denounce him when he visited the UK earlier this year, end quote. Israeli settler colonialism was always as brutal and violent as any Itamar Ben-Gvir or any Bezalel Smartridge, but it was sugar-coated in socialist collectivist rhetoric. Now they don't bother with the sugarcoating. Why should they? Because there's no consequences for anything Israel does. Why should they pretend? And so that was Electronic Intifada Director Ali Abunima on Breakthrough News. You know, we definitely reported on, on Palestine, the plight of the Palestinian people this year, this assassination of Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. And that case is still getting, you know, attention here in the U.S. The Al Jazeera is taking the case to the International Criminal Court. There's pressure from also from Al Jazeera and, and Abu Akleh's family on uh, members of Congress who have come out to speak out on her behalf, on behalf of the family, uh, so that the U.S. Uh, does not ignore the case. But uh, still, there's no big movement from the U.S. to 
uh, hold Israel accountable for her murder. She was a U.S. citizen. She's a journalist. And still, after we reported on a press conference held on Capitol Hill with her family and U.S. lawmakers, still the Biden administration is not moving with any type of determination for justice for her. Well, certainly there has to be grave concern about the developments in Israel, the coming to power, uh, what can only be called neo-fascist. But we should put this in a wider context. Uh, you had a similar political trend, I'm afraid to say, in Italy with the Maloney regime, which, quite frankly, boasts about its ties to the discredited Mussolini. Hmm. He saw the coming to greater influence of the right wing in Sweden, a nation which we ordinarily associate with social democracy. And this is part of a global trend, I'm afraid to say, that to a degree is countervailed by the left-leaning trends we've made reference to in South America, for example. So 2023, we'll see a race between these two countervailing trends. On the one hand, the growth of the ultra-right, and on the other hand, the resurgence of the left. And speaking of both trends, we should talk about the United States in this context, even though the Republicans did not fare as well as they thought they would during the midterm elections of November 2022. The fact of the matter is, is that in terms of total votes, they receive more votes than their Democratic Party opponents. So this has a lot to do with the fact that they can run up their tallies in places like Mississippi, where Euro-Americans across class lines oftentimes vote nine to one in favor of the GOP. And you have similar right-wing trends in Idaho, the Dakotas, Montana, uh, et cetera. And so we are not out of the woods as of yet, I'm afraid to say, with regard to the strength of right-wing forces in this country, which bid fair to impose, at the end of the day, a unique form of neo-fascism. We will have to return to the final report of the January 6th commission, but there are still revelations coming out from that that really show the complicity of the White House in the attack on the U.S. Capitol that day. And it seems that the final report also began to, in a way that the public hearings did not, address the ineffectiveness or or the uh, it, it questioned the the law enforcement response on the federal level, certainly, in terms of the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI. And so that story, I think, will continue to unfold in 2023. But before we get to our last topic, we'll take a break and we'll be right back. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam in conversation with Professor Gerald Horn. Show 
hard times, tales from the dark side, evidence of the settlements on my hard drive, man I swear my heart died at the end of that car ride, when I saw that checkpoint, welcome to apartheid, soldiers wear military green at the checkpoint, automatic guns, that's machine at the checkpoint, tables not M16s at the checkpoint, fingers on the trigger, you'll get leaned at the checkpoint, little children going to dogs and teens at the checkpoint, all your papers better be clean at the checkpoint, gotta put your finger on the screen at the checkpoint, and pray that red light turns green at the checkpoint, and Martin Luther King had a dream on the checkpoint, he wake with loud screams from the scenes at the checkpoint, is Malcolm X by any means at the checkpoint, imagine if your daily routine was the checkpoint, and Martin Luther King had a dream on the checkpoint, he wake with loud screams from the scenes at the checkpoint, is Malcolm X by any means at the checkpoint, imagine if your daily routine was the checkpoint, separation walls that surround in the checkpoint, on top is barbed wire like a crown on the checkpoint, better have your permits if you found at the checkpoint, coming on the tower, aiming down at the checkpoint. Idea is to keep you in fear at the checkpoint. Enter through the cage in the rear of the checkpoint. Feels like prison on a tear at the checkpoint. I'd rather be anywhere but here at the checkpoint. Nelson Mandela wasn't blind to the checkpoint. He stood for free Palestine at a checkpoint. Support BDS, don't give a dime to the checkpoint. This is international crime at the checkpoint. Arabs get treated like dogs at the checkpoint. Cause discrimination is the law. Lastly, Gerald, I want to cover China. At the start of the year, we were talking about the Winter Olympics in in China. And I remember all the kind of snide Western media coverage because they were had a zero COVID policy. Uh, they, they talked about, you know, people, you know, walking around and like, you know, with these like what, space suits or whatever, because they had certain protective gear, you know, because all these people from around the world were coming to China. And then now here at the end of the year, China has lifted the zero COVID policy. And now the story is to kind of demonize China and say that they have an explosion of COVID cases and emergency rooms are filled and and how Chinese people traveling around the world have to have special tests. Anyone coming from China has to be tested and has to test negative, whatever. And I think that, you know, that's the case, period. Like, if you travel and you come back to the U.S., you have to have a negative COVID test. So, but anyway, that was one part of the story. But then just on Thursday, I saw a CNN story. It says Biden, it, the Biden administration approves $180 million arms sale to Taiwan. The administration informed Congress Wednesday of its approval of the possible sale of vehicle-launched anti-tank munition-laying systems and related equipment to the Taipei Economic and Cultural Representative Office, Taiwan's diplomatic outpost in the United States, the State Department said. Now, Taiwan is not a country, and I guess they have a diplomatic outpost. But anyway, there are many layers to this story including the fact that, you know, as I've asked you many times, I don't see how, you know, uh, the U.S. can keep selling arms to a part of a country and how, I mean, it would be like, you know, China selling arms to Florida, you know. But anyway, I want to get your thoughts as we wrap up. Well, what's particularly distressing about this story is that the current buzzword on Capitol Hill is to convert Taiwan into a porcupine. (laughs) That is to say, to have Taiwan, this island off the coast of mainland China, which China claims as its own, to turn it into a nation, a 
an island that's bristling with weapons. And in that regard, I should mention the very distressing trips to Taiwan in August 2022, not only by Speaker Pelosi, but also by, once again, Congressman Gregory Meeks of Southeast Queens. I should also note that the op-ed pages of the major U.S. press organs have been carrying repetitive stories about how Taiwan should be preparing for war with China. This country, so-called, of 23 million people preparing for war against China, the world's giant of 1.3, 1.4 billion. I should also say that there are repercussions domestically of this new Cold War with China. What I'm referring to is that as a result of the attempt by Washington to partially decouple its economy from that of China, you've seen the decline to a degree of the Los Angeles Long Beach port, which up until this year had been the number one port in the United States of America, basically because it's the major port of entry for goods from China. But now it has been surpassed by the New York Newark port, by the way, which also bespeaks the closer relationship with the European Union, which is the flip side of this new Cold War with China. So this is a very disturbing development. As already discussed, you cannot begin to understand this conflict in Ukraine without understanding that at the end of the day, China is the ultimate target. It is the big enchilada that is in the sights of the State Department of the Pentagon. That is certainly a story that we'll continue to watch. I hope that, you know, it won't be a story about, you know, our total destruction in terms of humanity, the cavalier way that this year uh, nuclear war has been discussed or nuclear weapons have been floated about the installation of new nuclear weapons near the border of Russia in Europe. And so I, I remember before this started, um, before even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we, we we talked about it in terms of comparing it to the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 and how this was in reverse of that, how the only reason that crisis didn't end in kind of a catastrophe for humanity is because, you know, a Russian military official did not launch, you know, nuclear uh, weapons against the United States when the United States was testing nuclear weapons against a Russian submarine. We are kind of still living in this moment of the reverse of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and but unlike last time, we we don't see we are we're not out of the woods yet, and we in 2022 in a in a true fog of war, <laughs> and so I know that we will continue to discuss and to wade through this fog in in the coming year. I am certain of that. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank um, our geopolitical analyst, uh, Professor Gerald Horn, for joining me for this discussion about 2022. And um, I wish you uh, a happy new year and look forward to talking to you again next year. Ditto. Good luck. 
And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank Professor Gerald Horn again for joining me for our end of year discussion. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. We're on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Ivarum. Our website and archive of all of our shows is onthegroundshow.org. In addition, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and I also link to every show on my Instagram page at Esther underscore Ivarum, I-V-E-R-E-M, like Mary. Special thank you to our supporters on Patreon.com at On The Ground Show. The music we played this hour included Hugh Masakila, Is There Anybody Out There? Wait in the Water by Ramsey Lewis, Checkpoint by Jaziri X, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care, keep raising your voice, and Happy New Year. Peace. <laughs>